0: Again, political
1: junkies, a lot of stuff going on this week in the state capitol in Lansing. Even though the legislature is in recess, item number one, Attorney General Dana Nessel is in the news again. She has been accused by State Representative Bo LaFave, Republican of Iron Mountain, as blocking his access to her through Twitter, which he says according to a federal court ruling, is illegal. Dana Nessel also received a letter, somewhat surprisingly, from six Democratic members of the State House of Representatives saying they deplore her decision to start litigation to decommission Line 5 under the Straits of Act. Mackinac. They say that is a bad move. They wish she'd back off, pull out, and allow the tunnel to be built under the Straits of Mackinac. Item number three, more candidates are entering the third congressional district race for Congress in the wake of the incumbent Justin Amash's decision to leave the Republican Party and become an independent. He says he will seek Re-election as an independent. Now, we don't know for sure whether that actually will happen. I mean, we are more than eight months away from the filing deadline next spring. A lot can change. In fact, a lot can change just within a matter of days or weeks here. And we are more than half a year away from the filing deadline. But if Justin... Amash should change his mind and decide, you know, I'm going to set my sights higher and run as a libertarian for president. The 2016 nominee for the Libertarian uh, Party for the presidency, Gary Johnson, former governor of New Mexico, said, you know, I'm all right with that. I think Justin Amash would uh, be a very credible candidate for president. And Gary Johnson says, I'm not going to run, so I'm okay with his doing it. Item number four, Democrats are flooding Michigan. On Friday, U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York visited Michigan and had three stops in Bloomfield Hills, Lansing, and Flint. And the NAACP has their upcoming national convention in Detroit and already you have commitments uh to be part of a debate at that convention from democratic presidential candidates Cory Booker, Julian Castro, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, the front runner, and US Senator Kamala Harris of California. They all say they're coming and more may come uh between now and the time of the NAACP conclave in Motown and a week after that comes a big democratic nationally televised debate or debates in Detroit uh, depending on how many candidates are still in the race. Remember, we've had 24 announced candidates in the race up to this point. Nobody's dropped out yet. We'll see what happens. Uh, There's something else in the news I thought is worth noting, and that is the city of Flint has just been ranked one of the worst operating in the entire United States. Now, that's nothing new. I'll get to that in a minute. But a new study of local leadership effectiveness has ranked Flint one of the worst operating cities in the United States, the Wallet Hub study. Remember, we had WalletHub on here uh, the last couple of weeks uh, talking about the surveys they do from Washington, D.C., periodically on a whole range of topics and issues. Their study measured the effectiveness of local leadership by determining a city's operating efficiency. A city's operating efficiency depends on how city officials manage and spend public funds by comparing the quality of services residents receive against the city's total budget. Flint was ranked 146th out of 150, making it one of the United States' worst large cities. But guess what? They're not the worst. Who is the worst? As you can imagine, it's Detroit, Despite all you've heard about a Detroit renaissance, it's still ranked as the worst operating large city in the United States. Now, Flint city officials did not immediately respond to the study, which used a, quote, quality of service, unquote, score made up of 37 different metrics grouped into six service categories, which the study measured against the city's per capita budget. Flint ranked 22nd out of 150 cities in terms of financial stability. Now, that is kind of an amazing thing. In other words, the best ranking that Flint got out of 150 cities was in the category of financial stability. Well, it was the city's shambled finances that forced successive governors going back to John Engler and including Democrat Jennifer Granholm and Republican Rick Snyder to appoint emergency managers to oversee Flint and get it out of its financial morass. So now its financial stability apparently is not so bad. And it ranks 71st, and that's about in the middle out of 150 cities, in infrastructure and pollution control. Well, that is incredible, you might be thinking. I mean, after all, Flint was the victim of the so-called Flint water crisis. So it's kind of incredible that it's ranked that high at this point. Maybe what has been done to help Flint up to this time has catapulted up from the bottom ranks of the 150 to 71st place. The financial oversight had uh, ended uh, after Rick Snyder declared it a financial emergency in 2011. He was the most recent governor to do so. But here's the bad news. The city ranked 110th in safety, and ranked 138th in health, Flint's education was ranked 141st, and its economy was ranked the lowest, 150th, rock bottom. And by the way, when we talk about the schools in Flint, there are only 4,500 students approximately left in the Flint public school system. That is down from over 40,000 about four decades ago. Three school districts in suburban Genesee County, Carmen Ainsworth, Grand Blanc, and Davison, all have bigger school districts than the entire city of Flint, which is a city of almost 100,000. Now, according to Wallet Hub, Flint's violent crime rate was up 23% in 2017. A Federal Bureau of Investigations report showed Flint was sixth most violent city in the nation. The city had 44 homicides in 2017 and 35 homicides in 2018, according to a previous report. The city was ranked the most impoverished city of its size or larger for the second year in a row in 2018, according to a U.S. Census Bureau study. Nearly 39% of the city's residents and 60% of its children are living in poverty, according to the study. The national average for children living in poverty is 21%, according to the National Center for Children in Poverty. There's much more I can say about this, and I will next week, but we've got a lineup of guests on other topics, and I will be back in a minute with the first one.
0: You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned. My head is
1: I am trying to keep track of what's going on over there in West Michigan's third congressional district. It seems like there's a development every day. I think almost anybody following Michigan politics knows at this point that the incumbent Justin Amash uh, announced he was leaving the Republican Party a couple of weeks ago, and he uh, says right now anyway, he plans to run for reelection as an independent. And a number of candidates have stepped forward. Some have already or had already challenged him even before he left the Republican Party. And the first and foremost was State Representative Jim Lauer, uh, who is from Eureka Township, which is in southwestern Montcalm County surrounding the city of Greenville, uh he is with us now welcome representative james lauer
2: thanks for having me on bill appreciate it
1: well look tell me what's going on i understand you've raised a ton of money in a very short period of time two hundred thousand dollars in just 40 days and just what is the lay of the land at this point going
2: forward Right, absolutely. So I got into the race uh, with only 40 days left in the in the quarter, and you know, for Congress, you have to report every quarter, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. And so, in that 40-day time period, we were able to raise just over $200,000 from 3,200 individual contributors. There's a lot of excitement behind our campaign, both then and now. Uh, originally, I, as you said, I was challenging Congress Amash, Congressman Amash in the Republican primary. But after he saw two consecutive polls that showed us blowing him out of the water by double digits, even in a multi candidate field, uh, he said he's leaving the party to become an independent. It's kind of funny that uh, he tries to claim that he was going to do this all along and this is part of a grand strategy. Well, if that were true, he'd have done it before the last election, or he was, certainly would have done it before I started challenging him and beating him. So. That's pretty much laughable, uh, that that accusation there. But anyway, so now he says he's running as an independent, so we'll have to beat him in November and and beat the Democrat.
1: Well, do you think you have a clear path to the nomination now with uh, Justin Amash out of the Republican primary?
2: Look, I think we had a clear path to begin with. If you looked at the one-on-one matchup between me and Amash, I was beating him, and then in the five-way field, Uh, I was beating him and all the other candidates by double digits, too. And we're raising a lot of money. We've got a lot of excitement, a lot of volunteers behind our campaign. So, yeah, I would say we're still the front runner. We're in the driver's seat for the Republican nomination. I think we'll get it, and I think that we'll beat both uh, Justin Amash and whoever the Democrats nominate in November.
1: Do you think that Justin Amash actually will go through with running as an independent? I mean, there's never been an independent candidate elected to Congress in the history of Michigan.
2: You know, I don't know. He says that he doesn't do things to lose, but then again, every decision he's made for, given the last, you know, three, four months seems to have been designed to make sure he wasn't elected to Congress again uh, from the voters' perspective. he's lost whatever support he originally had. I mean, he might have a few people that are still supporting him, but overall, people want somebody that's pro-life, pro-jobs, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-Trump, which is what our campaign is. So that, that's why he was losing the Republican primary, and he'll lose in the general as well.
1: Justin Dimash has a libertarian profile, and a lot of people have speculated he might just decide, you know, I'm going to become officially a libertarian with a capital L and maybe run for Congress as a libertarian rather than an independent or perhaps run for president as a libertarian, a former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson, the 2016 Libertarian presidential nominee, basically just, I wouldn't say endorsed Justin Amash, but he said, hey, I'm okay with Justin Amash running as a Libertarian for president. In 2020, I, Gary Johnson, am not going to run. What do you think about that prospect?
2: You know, I think he then uh, splits the anti-Trump vote with the Democrats. You know, I I certainly don't see him pulling votes away from President Trump. I think President Trump's going to do very well in the election. But he's so anti-Trump and he's running on an anti-Trump agenda, whether it be for Congress or whether it be uh, for president. So he's clearly going to pull votes from the from the set of people who really hate the president and, and don't want to work with him and just basically want to oppose him for the sake of opposing him. That's what the congressman's done over the last several years since Trump became president. So if that's what he does, it's basically the same campaign either way. Whether it's a campaign as an independent or a libertarian for Congress, it's a very, you know, mean-spirited, anti-Trump type campaign that's based on nothing other than hatred for the president. Or if it's a campaign against the president, it's the same thing. But regardless, I think the voters are going to reject it either at a national level or in the third congressional district.
1: Well, in the Republican primary, there are a couple of other candidates who either had already announced, or I think one came out this week and announced and claimed he was a big Trump supporter. Is this going to be a race, in a sense, for the Republican nomination among candidates trying to out-Trump each other, basically saying, I'm the candidate who's most representative of what President Trump believes in, and if so, how are you positioned against these other candidates making similar claims?
2: So if you take a look at the ones who had announced um, prior to Amash leaving the primary, every single one of them except for me was either part of the Never Trump movement or made very derogatory remarks about the president when he was when he was running for office and or donated to Democrats uh, over, over the last several years. Now the new candidate that's entered uh, the field is hanging his hat on the fact that Trump rented his building for thousands of dollars so apparently that somehow makes them a big Trump supporter, the fact that they used his building. I think it's pretty laughable. But then you have my campaign, where you know it's a campaign of uh, effectiveness, getting things done in the State House of Representatives, very conservative policies, heavy lifts that other people weren't able to get done, bringing Republicans together and rallying around uh, the issues that the voters want to see us address. And then layered on top of that, of course, is the fact that I supported the president uh... one hundred percent i wrote an op-ed supporting him after a lot of people were abandoning him in west michigan during the excess hollywood situation and i wrote a i wrote an op-ed endorsing him and explaining why he should still be elected president and had his back when he needed it the most so i think i have a strong background when it comes to president trump and i have a strong background when it comes to a lot of issues whether they're second amendment issues whether they're pro-life issues whether they're pro-jobs issues whether they're pro-family issues and maybe most importantly for the voters getting things done. What they want to see in Congress is working together with President Trump and other members of Congress and the Senate to get legislation moving. Amash has gotten one bill done in the last 10 years, and it renamed a post office. In my first term in the state house, of Representatives, I passed 10 bills, and every single one of them was very intricate, very important, and made a big difference for the voters of the state of Michigan. So that's what they're going to see when they look at my background.
1: Jim Lauer, you did something uh, really pretty unusual. I think you've released a campaign video already. I've looked at it. Uh, Very impressive. Uh, This early, (laughs) uh, you know, literally more than a year away from the Republican primary. Um, What does that signal, do you think, to everybody in that district and what you're trying to do in your campaign?
2: Well if you look at if you look at the independent polling that's been done so this is this is third party groups we've really raised my awareness for our campaign tremendously since I announced the favorability is really high and that the negatives are super low and and people are buying into our campaign and a lot of that money that we brought in over the first forty days came from people all around the state of Michigan and even nationally people that are excited about my campaign and excited about what we're bringing to the table so the video is to help voters get to know me even more because there are some obviously it's a big district, and my State House District only covers a portion of it. So I want people to know who I am, what I'm running on, what I want to accomplish in D.C. So we put the video out uh, early on so that way voters have ample opportunity to get to know me.
1: One of the people who has announced he is interested in the Republican nomination is named Meyer, M-E-I-J-E-R, like the supermarket chain family, and he is part of that family. Uh He might have the capability of spending a lot of his own personal money in that race. Is that of concern to you, uh, or does he have a profile that maybe doesn't quite fit with what Republican primary voters are looking for in that race?
2: So it's it's certainly the latter. He can spend as much money as, as he wants, and he's not going to win the nomination. He can spend as much of their personal fortune. Obviously, his father's a billionaire, and he's part of a billionaire family and, and grew up in that kind of an environment. So they obviously have ample personal resources to put in, and that's fine. There's there's no nothing wrong with that. But it's not going to get him the nomination because he's donated to an anti-Trump super PAC that exists for the sole purpose of attacking the president and electing candidates like AOC, Ilene Omar, and Rashida to leave and he donated to that and it said right on its website that that's uh, what it was for even if he claims that that's not what it was and he's personally donated to several democrats over the years he started a quote unquote bipartisan pact the fact is that pact gave to nancy pelosi and emily's list which is pro-abortion so if you look at the values that the party cares about he's completely out of step with them and it's not surprising that he's pulling at a whopping four percent uh versus us in the primary currently
1: I wish we could talk longer, but we're out of time. I want to thank you very much, State Representative Jim Lauer of Eureka Township, who is the front runner in the polls and in fundraising right now for the Republican nomination in the 3rd Congressional District. Jim Lauer, thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Bill. Appreciate being on.
0: This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill.
1: We're back with another impressive guest. Uh, She is the wife of a former Republican state senator, Matt Donaskus. But more importantly, Diane Donaskus is the longest-serving Republican member of the Wayne State University Board of Governors, or she was for 24 years. She won three straight elections in 1994, 2002, 2010, and her tenure ended last year. The only member of any party who ever served longer was Leon Atchison, a Democrat, who served four eight-year terms, 32 years, and actually uh, might have continued longer, except he was denied renomination by his own party, the Democrats. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, But Diane Donaskus, welcome to The Political Insider.
3: Thank you, Bill. Excited
1: to talk to you this morning. Okay, well, now there's some strange stuff going on on the Wayne State University Board of Governors now once you left. I mean, things kind of fell apart. Maybe there's a cause and effect there (laughs) with your leaving because, as I understand it, half the board, four of the eight members, is suing the other half. Uh, Can
3: you tell me
1: what in heck is going on there?
3: Well, I... I I'm going to start by saying this is really disappointing to me because in the 24 years I was on the board, nothing ever reached this level of animosity. And so I'm very concerned for the university. Um, so um, this particular incident um, began over the purchase of a, a piece of property on Mack Avenue near the medical center. And uh, originally there was concern by some board members that you know about the cost And uh, as I understand it, they asked the administration to go back and perhaps find someone that would make sure that we had someone who would lease it so that the income would be there if we did, you know, pursue a purchase of it, which they did. Um, Actually, the UPG, um, uh, the university um, physicians group, um, will lease the building, and then the university could also sublease for um, some of their pediatrics departments. So they had, you know, the income. Dream that would support the building and so they put it on the agenda to bring it back to the board and uh, one board member was going to be out of town international travel so unaccessible for the meeting and as i understand it three board members were concerned that the vote on this would not go their way and so they refused to go to the meeting um which i'm sorry but i have an opinion on this very strong it is your obligation to serve and to attend meetings and to vote, and um, it's not always going to go your way, but it's your obligation. Well, I take it
1: that that you would have supported the the purchase of of the Mack
2: Avenue property.
3: I I probably would have. I I don't have all the details, and I wasn't there to post my... But if it made sense, and if we had given the president and his administration a directive to look for someone to lease the building, and they did that, then to me, you know, they've done what we asked them to do. The space is needed. It's not that it's, you
4: know, it's not
3: needed space. It is needed. And if those requirements were met, then I would follow through with my commitment to vote for it.
1: Well, you at least would have shown up for the meeting, right? Yeah, I would have shown up. Okay, well, what else is going Is there some other stuff going on? Well,
3: so they what happened was that um, an opinion was given by our legal department that um, the president, as an ex-officio member, could... Um, could uh, then count towards a quorum because they did not have a quorum. They had four members president. with an eight member board, you need five. But that as an ex officio member, he could serve as the first person for did the you, quorum. Did you
1: ever face that situation during your 24 year tenure or not? No,
3: no, we did not. Did, you, did um, I it can't strike you? At the time, we didn't have a quorum. Well, we the, always had. You
1: always had a quorum, so it never came up. It was never an issue. Were you a little surprised at that legal counsel recommendation that? The president could be counted uh, to make a quorum?
3: No. I mean, you know, I look at press, you look at even in the United States Senate, I mean, even though the, the, the vice president doesn't normally vote, he can break a tie. And in other universities, from the opinions I've seen, um, it's the same, that if you are an ex-officio member under the same rules of the organization that all the other members are, that that person can serve, uh, you know, can even vote often on... Uh, on the board, so I'm not surprised. I, I, I'm not. I will tell you, I'm not a legal um, expert by any means, and I have to trust that our legal department did their research. But I have seen that opinion expressed for other universities. I think University of Mis- Michigan faced this at one point, so um, as I recall. So. Um, well, let, let, me, let
1: me just interject here. In other words, the four people there with the president as the ex officio member. And not voting on anything other than making a quorum, they were not the four people who uh,
3: are suing. It is the other,
1: yeah, the other hand. In other words, the people who showed up for the previous meeting are the ones who then boycotted this meeting, and yes. and and yeah. now they are suing the exactly. four people who showed up with the quorum uh, from the president. Uh, claiming that, you know, what they did was illegal because, yep. okay, go ahead.
3: Yes, that's exactly it. And it's actually, um, it is three people boycotted. What The one person we knew was going to be absent, Dr. Kumar, he was going to be on international travel. So they knew that. So the other three, had they attended the meeting, were anticipating not having the majority they wanted or even a tie. And so they boycotted the meeting.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so what happened at this meeting? The so second, the, um, the second. In meeting.
3: addition to the, yeah. the tuition increase, was was passed, but that was on the um, that was already on the agenda, and you know we knew for a long time, and that has a deadline. You have to have that done by a certain date in order to implement for the fall.
1: Was there a and division I don't know of? Was there? Div- I don't know. You don't what, know the division of opinion on I that.
3: I do not know what the okay. opinion on All that right. was. So they were not there to vote for that. But then the um, property. Purchase did go through. Um, The four members voted and agreed to do that, and um, so then there are three. I know the three board members um, sued, and I I believe they named Dr. Kumar on that as well, but I'm not sure. You know, but I know the three. Who are the three? Who it would be Dr. Abusuito, it would be Sandra um, Hughes O'Brien, and it would be um, Dana Thompson.
1: Okay, and they were the ones who uh, basically they did decide to buy the property, right?
3: They are the ones who boycotted the meeting.
1: Oh, oh they boycotted the meeting. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm sorry. So
3: the people on the board who voted for who voted at, as as part of a quorum, yeah. would have been uh, Kim Trent. It would be um,
1: Dana uh, Thompson.
3: Dana, no, Dana. Dana voted would have was one of the ones who boycotted. I'm so sorry. The people who were there were Mark Gaffney, um Kim Trent, um, Brian Barnhill, and um, uh, former Chief Justice Marilyn Kelly.
1: Marilyn Kelly. So the the people who weren't at the meeting, now they're the ones who have sued the ones who showed up and did this vote. So Mm -hmm. when is that going to be resolved, and can it be resolved?
3: Um, I believe it's today.
1: I believe there is a hearing on it today. Okay, Friday. uh, And... You know, it could be resolved. Does the president's job, is that hanging the balance too?
3: Well, that's a, the board makes that decision and that's based on the majority vote of the board. So I would hope not because, you know, I look at the process as a member who's been on this board for 24 years and I look at the progress that's been made in the last five years under the leadership of President Wilson um, and, you know, how do you look at how do you view a president who's been able to take graduation rates and make them significantly higher to the point where we received a, an award for it? You know, has dealt with several medical school issues, brought helped bring the UPG out of bankruptcy. Um, I look at the diversity um, programs now on the campus. I look at um, just all the progress that has been made on this campus in this in these last five years. So, you know, your president should be voted in based upon the, the, the quality of the work that's been accomplished, and I don't think you can argue with it. So that is a board decision, but as a board member, I, you know, I firmly believe it is my goal as a board member, my obligation, to do what is best for the university. And first of all, that's showing up. And second of all, that's doing my homework. And third, it's voting in a way that will move the university forward for the sake of the students. Was the,
1: is the President clearly affiliated, do you think at this point with one faction of the board?
3: No, uh, I don't think so. I think he's affiliated with what's best for the university, but right now that seems to be in conflict with at least three of the members, and i'm I'm not sure what their motivation is it, because this is only one issue. I mean, as you may recall, there were several that have been raised issues prior to this um with regard to new contract for the president, with regard to um, an expanded affiliation with Henry Ford Hospital. So, um, you know, there's, they appear to be opposed to many things um, at the university, and I'm really not sure what the motivation is.
1: Right. Listen, we could keep talking about this. I'm fascinated to see how it turns out. And thank you very much for giving us this perspective on it. It's quite an extraordinary situation.
3: It is. I hope they resolve it for the sake of the university. Absolutely. Thank you. Diane
1: Donaskus.
0: You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with another important guest. He is
1: Steve Linder. And Steve Linder spent 40 years in the political space. I think he's still there, frankly, working for the Michigan Manufacturers Association, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. He raised money and or ran several hundred campaigns, including the Michigan Republican Party, Senate Republican Campaign Committee presidential campaigns, congressional campaigns, judicial over 70 PACs, 20 statewide ballot question committees, National Republican Congressional Committee, and many 501c4 foundations. He raised over $400 million for the causes he was affiliated with. He then became a partner and owner of the Sterling Corporation, Michigan's largest issue management, campaign management, and fundraising consulting firm. But recently, uh, you know, the uh, bad guys on the other side from Steve Linder, at least the way he looks at it, his opponents, they have attacked him for supposing using what they call dark money. And they have sued him, and they have filed complaints with the Justice Department, the Eternal Revenue Service, the Michigan Secretary of State, and the Eternal (laughs) General and Attorney General. And they have disparaged Steve Linder in the press. Uh, They seem to uh, not have a great affection for the First Amendment, and he contends it's all while using their own dark money to carry out all of this. Uh, what do you say to that, Steve Linder?
4: Well, Bill, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, I don't know if that means I've been successful or I'm just really old. <laughs> <laughs> a little of both, maybe. Yeah, You're- yeah, a little longer than the twos. But, you know, ha- having you know been involved in fundraising from the sort of early days of You know, uh, I started the the year that the uh, new campaign finance laws, both at the federal and the state level, came into effect. You know, if you really look at the way those laws were written, they were written by Democrats and labor to privilege Democrats and labor and really punish, you know, conservatives in the business community. I don't know if you remember, Bill, I think you might have been in the legislature then. Insurance companies were prohibited from having political action committees. I don't know how they made that decision. Just pick a bunch of industries and say you don't get to participate in democracy. Of course, you know, got thrown out. And uh, you remember there were limits on how much corporations could legally contribute to ballot question committees. And, you know, that got overturned in the court. And I think it's important for your listeners to remember every single part of the Campaign Finance Act at the state and federal level that has been challenged in court has been thrown except for one, and that is the ability to regulate how much money people can give directly to a candidate. Early on, uh, even before Citizens United, we realized that unless you're going to do direct advocacy, which means spending money to elect or defeat legislators, um, people including corporations, had a right to speak out on issues, to promote their positions on issues, and use their own money to do so, whether it was directly or through uh, uh, 501c4s. And, of course, once Citizens United was litigated, it basically enshrined uh, that constitutionally everybody, including corporations, including individuals, including all manner of entities, had the right to spend money to speak out as long as they didn't advocate on behalf of or or, or against uh, a candidate for office and as you know most of what you guys do in the legislature is try and manage the uh, the economy through laws and regulations and they have profound effect on the on everybody including the private sector and and you know they've decided to organize and and, and pool money just like labor unions have done uh, for many years, trial lawyers have done for many years. And I think once uh, more than, than the people on the left got into the game, they didn't like it uh, very much and have uh, decided if they can't win in court, the way they're going to do it is through shaming in the press and then filing large numbers of frivolous uh, complaints uh, as, as harassment techniques.
1: Well, so are you guilty of the rap of using dark money more so than your opponents?
4: Well, first of all, dark money is it's not a term it's a pejorative term it's a it's a made up term there, It's just it's resources being spent to spare there's no such thing as dark money and And I always get all over the press using that term because it makes it look like we're doing something illegal when in fact we're doing something that the Supreme Court has said it's perfectly legal. And yes, I raise any kind of money and spend it properly for its intended purpose, whether it's hard money to elect a candidate or whether it's non-hard money through uh, other entities like 501c4s to to speak out loudly and educate voters on the great issues of the day.
1: Well, I think the connotation of dark money is hidden money, even though it's legal that somehow it's impossible for the citizen to really detect where the money is coming from. And even if that is the case, does your opposition do that as much as you do, or are they completely transparent so you know where all their money is coming from, whereas they don't know where your money is coming from?
4: Well, that's funny because last year the... Uh, left-of-center uh, 501c4 groups actually outraised the, uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, continued on this platform of, of uh, you know, dark money, you know, corrupting politics. And to me, having people educated, who thinks about these things unless we put them in, in in front of them? And as long as we do it legally, we don't cross the line, we don't, you know, use corporate money to... Uh, promote candidates, what we're doing is, is not only perfectly legal, I think that it's, it, it provides for more education, more transparency, transparency for democracy. And, you know, as far as the, the transparency and, you know, identifying donors, look, in, in the 1950s, uh, white supremacist groups uh, sued the, the NAACP to try and get them to reveal their donors. And the court said no. People have a right to organize in private organizations, and, and if they're not directly making the decisions that affect how that money's spent, they don't have to uh, reveal their, their donors. That's our right as Americans, to, to uh, join private organizations and, and not be subjected uh, to uh, harassment. So I guess if it's good enough for the NAACP, it's good enough for the rest of us.
1: Switching gears a moment, uh, what about the recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court on redistricting? How do you look at that?
4: Well, um, the court, you know, I think did the right thing and said, look, it's, you know, we're we're a nation of 50 states and it's up to the states. The Constitution says it's up to the states to, to draw their lines. I think they came down with the right decision, and in the case of Michigan, it would have caused Chaos, because of course our constitution says you can only serve a certain number of terms. It would have termed out every uh, state senator that was in their second term, so we would have had another complete turnover of the legislature in two years. So now we get to, you know, see out the terms that people were elected to, and of course we've got the new redistricting commission uh, coming online that. Uh, has yet to be impaneled and still has yet to let us know what the rules are going to be.
1: How do you feel about this new commission? Are you optimistic that it's going to be a success, or do you uh, think we should have just stayed with the system we had, you know, for 185 years?
4: Well, <laughs> so I'm going to start out by by, by giving you a statement. Um, I trust elected officials who are accountable. And as opposed to people who are unaccountable and nobody, you know, remember, Sterling drew lines that were submitted to the legislature that ended up, you know, getting adopted. So I I know quite a bit about how redistricting is done. And contrary to public opinion and public belief and the left, there were lots of rules we had to follow, uh, including the Voting Rights Act. I will say one thing. I will be interested to see what happens if uh, uh, majority minority districts under a plan written by the redistricting commission yet to be impaneled reduces the number of uh, minorities that uh, will be serving in the Congress and the state legislature. There's a, this is really fraught with peril and landmines. We have a lot of people who really won't know anything about it making big decisions.
1: Uh, you know, honestly, Steve Linder, we're just getting started, right? I mean, we could talk about Justin Amash in the 3rd Congressional District. We could talk about the elections next year. We could talk about term limits. We can talk about the general tone of politics and where we go to govern, but we're out of time. So I'm going to have to get you back for an encore performance at some point. Is that okay?
4: Love to, Bill. Thank you. Good to hear from you.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Steve Linder.